Well, good morning, Fair Oaks, and Happy New Year. Some of you, I was talking to one person this morning, they're like, New Year's was last week. Well, you know, I wasn't here last week, and uh, man, I love New Year's, I love new beginnings, and, and look, I know not everybody does. Uh, I'm well aware that there are several of you who are watching this from home right now because you're sick right now. Um, others of you, maybe you got cussed out on Facebook this week, um, or maybe you were on the other end of that equation as you're seeing the things going on in our world, you had some things to say. Um, and so I'm well aware that um, some of you are maybe not so excited for another year. Um, I think one dad on Instagram, Karen sent this to me, I thought, I thought this sums it up so well. Uh, he says this, at this point, a new year feels a bit risky. What about getting a certified pre-owned year? Can anybody relate to that? Yeah. Um, well, okay, so I've, I've got bad news and good news for you then. Uh, the bad news is you cannot get a certified pre-owned year. Uh, unless someone drove in a DeLorean with a flux capacitor this morning, we're not going to get 2019 back. Um, but uh, the good news is that 2022, um, I'm here to proclaim to you this morning, 2022 can be the year that you are hoping for, that you are longing for, and no matter what's going to come your way, no matter what's going to happen in our world, this can be the year that you have been hoping for if you have the right king in your life. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So if you've got a Bible, um, why don't you grab it and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Um, Mark is one of four biographies that we have of Jesus' life in the New Testament. Um, and it's a great place uh, to turn to learn about Jesus and what he is like and who he is and what he has done to bring us life. And, and that's why, um, for those of you who are new, uh, last year we started on Easter Sunday this journey through Mark's gospel where we spent um, several months looking at these stories um, of Jesus to, to really get a better vision of who the real and the risen and the living Jesus is, to get a better vision of what does life and his kingdom look like and how does Jesus want to lead us into that life here and now. So we spent several months doing that last year, and then we took a break in the fall to go through uh, the opening pages of the Bible, um, where I think we covered every controversial topic imaginable. Uh, wasn't that fun? So, so we did Genesis, um, and, and, and now, uh, today, we are returning to the Gospel of Mark. Now, um, it's often said that uh, the Gospel of Mark is really a passion narrative with a long intro. Um, here's what people mean by that. The first 10 chapters of Mark that we looked at last year, um, they cover years of Jesus' life and ministry. And if you were here when we went through this, it was action-packed, right? I mean, we'd get um, immediately uh, Jesus casts out a demon, and uh, immediately he goes and teaches the crowd, and immediately he uh, feeds a stadium full of people with a little boy's lunchable, and then immediately he walks on water. It's immediately this, immediately that, immediately that. I really like Mark for that reason. It's action-packed the first 10 chapters, but then what happens in chapter 11 is the whole narrative slows down. And for the last six chapters, Mark will tell us about just one week of Jesus' life. It is the last week of Jesus' life. Um, 
And, and that should tell us something from the very structure of Mark, that 10 chapters are fast-paced on the life and ministry of Jesus, and the last week slows way down to tell us what happens in Jerusalem. That should tell us something um, right from the beginning. What Mark is telling us from the very structure of how he has written his gospel is if you want to know about Jesus, if you want to know what life in his kingdom is like, it's important to know um, what he has done. It's important to know what he has taught and how he is related to people. It's important to know all the things we've seen in the first 10 chapters. But the most important thing to know about Jesus, the climax of the story of Jesus, the one thing you really can't miss about Jesus is his suffering, death, and resurrection that we're going to be looking at over the course of this week that all occur in the city of Jerusalem at the end of his life. And, and, and here's what I'll tell you about this. We're going to be looking at this. Uh, we're going to look at, we're going to take uh, several months to go through one week, because uh, that's how we like to do it here. We like to go a few verses at a time. And um, from now until Easter Sunday, we'll be looking at this last week of Jesus's life. And here's what I will tell you. If you will lean in on this series, uh, you will get to know Jesus in a whole new way. Um, like for those of you who are new to church, maybe it's a new year and you're trying something new out. Uh, I'm really excited for you. I think you're definitely going to hear some things about Jesus, maybe for the first time that can change your life, alter your destiny. Uh, I'm really excited for you. Um, but I'm also excited for uh, the rest of us that have been here, particularly for those of you who have been walking with Jesus longer than I have been alive. Here's what I can tell you with confidence. There is more of Jesus for you to know. There is more of Jesus for you to know, to love, to experience. And just like he wants to um, lead those that are new into life, to reveal what he has done, he wants to lead you and I deeper into that life. He wants to continue to change our lives. He wants to continue working in us as we look at this story of this most important week in all of human history that took place in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to be doing for the next several months. Are you excited? Are you ready? Okay, I, now I want you to know, I watched the live stream last week. I know how interactive you all were with uh, my buddy Bernard. All right, I heard it. I was like, wow, listen to them. See, I heard that. I was like, wow, way to go. Thank you, Pastor Bernard. So, all right, I'll, I'll ask you one more time. Are you ready? Okay, then let's go. We'll begin our journey into this final week of Jesus' life um, with his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. It goes like this. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And he will send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found the colt tied to a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. 
And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All right. This is how it all begins. And I want to ask a basic question that I think will really frame up and help us understand this story. And the basic question is this. Why is the crowd so excited? Right? Like, what we read here, it sounds like something out of a rock concert. Um, like, you've got people that are, um, Jesus is riding in, and, and they're taking their cloaks off, and they're throwing them on the ground. They're ripping branches off the nearby trees, like trying to um, make a red carpet of sorts. And maybe this sounds like other kinds of concerts. I've only been to rock concerts. But um, maybe you get down with another kind of music. But the people are freaking out. They're um, throwing their clothes on the ground. They're ripping down the trees, and they're singing. They're shouting this song. What are they so excited about? Well, let's look at what they're singing. That's a, probably a good place to start. They are singing Hosanna. Now, this is a Hebrew word uh, that means saved now. And so Jesus comes riding in. They start throwing their clothes on the ground, ripping down the trees, and they're shouting and they're singing, save now. Now, save from what? Why would they say this? Well, keep reading. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Now, um, if you know your Bible, the talk of the coming kingdom of our father David is loaded with meaning. Um, but if you don't, that's okay. Uh, I'm going to give you the two-minute version this morning. It's a new year. Uh, let's do it. Um, the story of the Bible really starts on page one with God creating a garden paradise uh, where heaven and earth overlap. And what that means um, is uh, God is there dwelling with his creation. So the first humans enjoy a perfect relationship with God. They walk with God. Everything is great. And because their relationship with God is great, everything else is great. The first marriage is perfect. There's no marriage fights. Uh, the first family, um, they, they have all these wonderful animals, even a dog that they get to name. Um, there's perfect peace in the animal kingdom. There's no animals tearing each other apart. There's no hurricanes and floods in the world. Everything's going great on page one of the Bible because God is there. Heaven and earth are overlapped. Um, but, but then what happens um, after a little while is that that harmony that we see God created the world with, it gets fractured. Um, when a rebel spiritual being uh, deceives our first parents into rebelling against their creator. And, and so from that moment, um, when humanity rebels against God, breaks relationship with God, um, everything is fractured. Now, heaven and earth are fractured. There's not that harmony. There's not that overlap. Now, the earth feels a lot more like hell than heaven. Some of you are like, you just explained my last week. Yeah. Um, but the story of the Bible doesn't end there. What God says in Genesis 3, from the moment it breaks, is he promises, I will one day fix this. I will one day reunite heaven and earth and undo the work of the serpent. And so we'll see this when we get back into Genesis later this year. Um, but God will come to a man named Abraham. Uh, originally, he's Abram. He gets renamed to Abraham. Come back in several months if you want to know why. Um, and he says to Abram, hey, I am going to bless you. Um, not because you're worthy, not because you're great, but I'm going to bless you because I'm gracious, I'm good, and I love to bless. And through blessing you, I'm going to make you and your family a blessing to the whole world. This is how God says he will restore the harmony of the cosmos. Through blessing a family that grows into a nation and through blessing them in such a way that the whole cosmos is blessed. And so Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. That's how you know everyone that grew up in church. So whether you knew that one or didn't, we're glad you're here. Love the diversity in this room. 
Many sons had father Abraham. Family gets real big. That brings us to the second book of the Bible. I promise this will speed up. Um, But that brings us to the second book of the Bible where that ancient rebel stirs up the nation of Egypt to enslave and abuse and to control God's people to try to stop God's plan. But God is faithful to his promise. He is stronger than Satan. He is stronger than the nations of this world. And he delivers his people from slavery with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. And he brings them into the promised land where they can worship God freely and walk in life as it was made to be. The nation of Israel was designed to be uh, Eden restored on the earth. Where all the nations could look and see, hey, that's what life is meant to be. That's what life in relationship with God is like. That's heaven touching earth again. This is the life that we want. And for a time, it was. There are some glory days in Israel. And really, at the peak of this, they have a king that loves God, who leads them in God's ways. Anybody know his name? David. Uh, I think I heard Dave say that one. That's awesome. Way to know your namesake. So you've got David uh, is the king. So here's where we have the coming kingdom of our father, David. They're talking about the glory days in Israel. They're like, yeah, that's when Yahweh dwelled in the temple. His presence was with us. He was blessing us. The whole world could see how good life was with God. There were these glory days just like there was in the garden. But the problem is the people of Israel, just like our first parents, eventually forgot the goodness of God and rebelled against him. I mean, even our boy David, if I had time to go into the story. And so what happens is uh, when their relationship with God is broken, when your relationship with God is broken, nothing in life works right. When that most important relationship isn't working right, nothing else can work right. And so what begins to happen in Israel is this one's promising start begins to give way to injustice and evil such that they become more evil than the nations that were around them. And so God allows another empire to come in to conquer them, to carry them away in exile so that the people might turn back to him like they did in the Exodus and cry out for mercy and grace in his presence once again. And that's really the story of the Old Testament. Um, That God blesses, uh, that humans enjoy it for a time, that humans grow forgetful, that humans rebel and sin against him. God is gracious, pursues, and redeems. Humans forget that blessing, rebel against him. God is gracious. This is the story of the Old Testament. Hopefully this makes you feel better about your last week. This is the story of the Old Testament, but the story does not end there. The Old Testament ends with God having his prophets talk about a day. He makes this final promise that he will one day send a king like David, a greater David who will lead the people um, once and for all out of this cycle of sin and death. A greater David who will be a king but not a flawed one like David who will one day reunite heaven and earth once and for all. This is what the Old Testament closes with. This is what the people of God were clinging to in the centuries between the Testaments. And this is what the people are calling to mind when they say, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. What they're saying about Jesus when they see him riding into town is, you're the one. You are the one that we've been longing for. You are the one we have been waiting for. And this is why they're freaking out. This is why they're taking their clothes off and throwing it on the road to try to make a a red carpet. This is why you have people just tearing branches off the trees to do anything they can to say, yes, we're excited. This is why the people are singing, because they are realizing all the promises of God are about to come true right in their presence. They're, They're saying, you are the one. And here's the thing. They're right. He he is the one, right? 
Like, we have the end of the book. We're reading this with the end in mind. Um, We know that Jesus is the one. And and here's what I will say. Um, He's not only the one that Israel was waiting for, he is the one that you have been waiting for. Like, I I don't know your story, but here's here's what I can tell you. Um, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so whatever life that you are longing for, and you come in here this morning, what I can tell you with confidence is that life is found in him. That he is the ultimate source of every good gift that you have ever longed for. And that everything you ultimately want in life will ultimately be found in him. This is why um, the New Testament authors will say things like, Christ is all and in all. He is the substance, he is the source of every longing we have. And so just like the crowd cried out and said, you're the one, um, he is the one that you and I have been longing for. He is the answer to every promise God has ever made to restore harmony, to lead us into the fullness of life. The life that you and I are longing for is found in him. But the way that we find that life might surprise you. And, and that's the second thing I want to look at in this story. So, so the first thing, why is the crowd freaking out? They're freaking out because Jesus is the one they've longed for. The king has come. Okay, we've got that. But the second thing might surprise us. And, and to do that, let, let's talk about how he rides in. See, on the one hand, um, Jesus is doing everything a king would do. He is riding into town uh, with the crowds shouting and singing and screaming of his praises. This is a common practice in the ancient world. And in fact, they did this for King David. When he rode into town, they had uh, the masses singing his praises. This is a very kingly moment here. Jesus is doing what you would expect a king to do. But there's something that's not quite right about this story. Anybody know what it is? He's on a donkey. Like, that's odd, right? You know, uh, the translation I'm reading says colt. Um, you know, the, the Greek word could either mean uh, young horse, which I had to look this up. Apparently that's what a colt is. Um, a, a young horse or a donkey. The other gospel accounts tell us it's actually a donkey. But e- either way, this is a young, small, unimpressive animal. And Mark told us this whole story like the animal's never been ridden. So this is not an animal that inspires confidence. Like, we're so far removed from this culture. You have to understand, they love their horses at this point in history. Caesar would ride on a big war horse. In fact, what we know from history is the regional governor, um, Pontius Pilate, rode into town on a big war horse in a very similar parade um, during this week. And so they loved having big war horses. Jesus rides into town just like you would expect a king, except for the fact that he's on this little donkey. It's almost comical. But Mark gives us this whole backstory so that we would know it's not accidental. So see, see, you could go, well, maybe, you know, Jesus was, uh, he didn't come from a lot of money. He's from Nazareth. We all know that's kind of a shady part of town. Maybe this was the best he could do. But Mark gave us this whole story of Jesus miraculously saying, go into this town. You're going to find it tied here. And you're going to say to the owners, they're going to be like, don't take it. But you're just going to say to them, Jesus says so. And they're going to be like, okay. Like Mark gives us this whole story to let us know, hey, it's not an accident that Jesus is on this colt. It's not that the donkey was the best thing that he had lying around. What Mark shows us is Jesus chose this animal specifically. So he chose this animal for a purpose. When every other king picks the biggest and baddest war horse to ride into town to strike fear in anyone, 
that would dare question them and to give confidence to everyone that would hope in them, Jesus instead picks this lowly, humble, little animal to ride in on. And it's not an accident. This animal is handpicked because Jesus is um, showing from the very beginning of this week that yes, he is the king that they have been longing for. He has come to save them, but that salvation might not look like what they're expecting. See, what's going to become apparent as this week stretches on is uh, this crowd, what they're looking for when they say Hosanna, um, they're looking for a military messiah. They're thinking of salvation in terms of a military defeat and overthrow of Rome. And, and Jesus, by getting on this donkey, he's telegraphing from the very start of the week that he's not come to Jerusalem to do battle against the armies of Rome. He has come to Jerusalem to accomplish a much greater salvation. And again, by the time you get to the end of the story, you see that this is great news. That what Jesus is coming to do is not to fight some human army, but to fight Satan, sin, and death itself. That through Jesus, the promise of this one family blessing the entire world, it is coming true in this moment. This is good news that he's come to fight someone greater than the Romans, but they weren't thinking about that. All the salvation they could envision, it was simply a matter of freedom from the occupying force. And so all the promises of God are coming true in this moment, but that was the last thing on their mind. They wanted Rome out. They wanted a military victory. And this is why when Jesus disrupts those expectations... When Jesus goes to the temple and cleanses it instead of going to the palace and saying to Pilate, get off my throne. When Jesus disrupts their expectations, the same crowd that sings his praises on Sunday by Friday will scream out, crucify him. We're done with him. We're frustrated with him. We don't get what he's doing. Kill him. The crowd turns on Jesus because he disrupts their expectations. And look, it's so easy to look at that and go, morons. If only I were there. I would have been like, guys, we, we shouldn't cry out against him. This is our Savior. No, you wouldn't have. I wouldn't have either. Like, see, it, it's so easy with the historical distance to look back on this story and be like, that dumb crowd. How could they be thinking about Rome when Jesus had come to do battle with Satan, sin, and death? But I think we all do this. I think we all have expectations of Jesus that we think he should do, and we get frustrated when he doesn't. Anybody? You are all talkative earlier. Amen. There it is. See, I think we all do this where we have expectations of Jesus when he doesn't meet them, we tend to get frustrated. And it's really easy to judge other people when they do it and be like, what, what are you freaking out about? He's God, just trust him. But when it comes to our own life, when we are living the experience, I think we're far more like this crowd than we tend to like to admit. Like, like I'll tell you, I am. Um, like, okay, let's just have some real talk. Um, I had some big prayers for our church this past year that Jesus didn't answer like I expected him to or wanted him to or frankly like I thought he should. If, that, if we're just being really honest, which I hope we can do that in church. Um, 
I had these prayers for our church, and I'm pretty sure they were biblical. I'm pretty sure they lined up with the heart of God, and yet he did not do them. And so I've had to wrestle with some frustration, like, what's going on, Jesus? We didn't see any baptisms. Do you not want to save? What's going on? Don't you want to bring people back to life in this place? What's going on? I have had to wrestle with some frustrations, and here's what I'll, I'm Here's what I'm learning as I'm um, just wrestling through this. Tell me if you can relate to this. I think we tend to think of Jesus as a genie instead of a king. Um, Here's the difference. A genie exists at your beck and call. So so you say to Jesus, um, hey, we want to see people get saved here, which I'm pretty sure Jesus wants to see that too. And we say, Jesus, I want you to fix this broken relationship, which I'm pretty sure Jesus wants to fix that too. Uh, we say, Jesus, I, I, I want you to uh, give me a better job, or I want you to um, fix the printer. Like, I'm wearing glasses this morning because we had printer issues, and I could barely read the notes, and I'm, I'm, try- I'm trying to get up here and preach about how Jesus is a king, not a genie, and I'm like, come on! Can't we just get the printer to go? Right? And, and it could be a thousand different things, but we have our expectations, and when Jesus doesn't line up with them, we freak out. We lose our minds. We're like, what's going on with you, Jesus? Uh, don't you care? Don't you want to do these things? Because our conception is Jesus is a genie, and what a genie says is your wish is my command. And so we expect, if I pray, Jesus is going to do it. And and frankly, what I think happens is if Jesus doesn't answer like we expect, we begin to do one of two things. Um, Most of it's it's probably a mixture of both. But one of two things. Number one, we blame God and we say, God, you're obviously not good because you're not answering my prayers like I expect. Or number two, we say, um, well, obviously I'm not good enough to meet your standards. If I just need to muster up a little bit more righteousness and favor in your eyes, and then you'll give me the wishes I want. And, and for most of us, it's a twisted mixture of both. But here, here's what I will say about that. Is, um, if, you, if your view, um, particularly I want to speak to those that would say, um, like, yeah, when Jesus doesn't answer my prayers, like, maybe you felt this way, like, oh, gosh, i got to stop swearing so much. If I could just stop swearing, then I think God will answer my prayers. Um, I, I've got to start reading my Bible more. It's a new year. This will be the year I finally make it through Genesis. If I could just do that, then God will answer my prayers more. And it becomes this treadmill of performance of, hey, if I could just work hard enough, then I'll have uh, enough favor in God's eyes. And because Jesus is nothing more than a genie, if I have enough wishes, he has to grant them. And if anyone can relate to that, if anyone feels exhausted by that treadmill, uh, I have good news for you this morning. Jesus is not a genie. He is a king. That's what this story is here to show us. That Jesus is not a genie for the righteous. He is a king who will save those who know they are not righteous. That for all who would cry out to Jesus like this crowd, Hosanna, and say to Jesus, I cannot muster up enough favor to have a good year. I've tried it a lot of years. Apparently I'm not righteous enough. For all who would say to Jesus, I need a savior, Hosanna, please save now, Jesus will take on our sin. He will 
um, remove our sin from us. He will restore our relationship to God. He will walk with you day by day and moment by moment and sovereignly work in our lives moment by moment in order to lead us more and more into life. But he does this as a king, not a genie. So now let me talk to the first crowd that's a little upset at Jesus. Jesus is a king, not a genie. And so what that means is Jesus will surprise you. If Jesus never surprised you, I'm going to love you enough to tell you a hard truth this morning. You're not following Jesus. If Jesus always lines up with what you think, if Jesus always delivers on your timetable and on your expectations, you're probably worshiping a figment of your imagination. Because what we see in the Bible is Jesus in the genie. He is a king who loves us enough to disrupt our plans. Like, how often have you prayed for things that with a little hindsight you can look back on and go, thank God he didn't give me that. Anybody? I I know I have. But, I mean, seriously, don't take my word for it. Think about this story. If Jesus had said to this crowd, your wish is my command, and he goes to the palace, and when Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews, rather than remaining silent, what if Jesus was like, I am, and cuts his head off? And calls down legions of angels to kill all of the Roman army. And hands, uh, he takes the crown and says to the Jewish people, all right, Israel's back on, baby. Gives them exactly what they wanted. How would that work out? I mean, seriously, use your holy imagination and think about this. They'd have their land back. They could worship in their ways without the interference of the Romans. But... Without Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins, kind of a big deal, they would still be in their sin. So they're still cut off from a relationship with God. They'd have to worship him from a distance through shadows and through mediators not having direct access to God in the temple. And and so because their relationship with God is not fully right, God's spirit does not dwell in them to empower them to walk in all of the good ways that they now know they should be walking in. I mean, guys, we saw this in the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament story that God draws near. He gives them his law. He gives them everything that they could do to succeed. But the problem is the problem ain't out there with other nations keeping us down. The problem's in here. The problem is our hearts are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. And so you can have all the land in the world you want. You can have all the freedom you want. But if your relationship with God isn't right, nothing is going to work right. And so Jesus loves this crowd enough to disrupt their expectations, to surprise them and say, I know you want me to defeat Rome, but I'm going to defeat your real enemy. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to defeat Satan's sin and death. So that when I rise again, your sins can be forgiven. My spirit can live within you and empower you and move in you and actually lead you to walk in my ways. And if you're like, he should have just given them the military victory. Seriously, go read the Old Testament. Having the land isn't enough. It's a new heart that we need. And Jesus loved this crowd enough to save them by disappointing them. To say, I know that you want this. But I'm your God, I'm your king, I know what you need, and so I'm going to love you enough to say no in order to give you what you really want. And and I want you to think about this. It wasn't easier for Jesus to go to the cross than to defeat the Romans. Like, how easy would it have been for him to snap his fingers? We'll get there in the Gospel of Mark, but people will mock him and say, 
man, why don't you call down angels from heaven to just end this whole thing while you're on the cross? Like the irony of that statement is he could have. It was not the Roman nails that kept Jesus Christ on the cross. It was his love for sinners that kept him there. It would have been far easier for Jesus to wipe out his enemies, but Jesus loves us too much. And so at the cost of his own life, he disrupts their expectation and goes to the cross and gives them what they needed most. And see, I think Mark kicks off this whole Passion Week with this story because we need to be reminded of this. Because we said earlier, haven't you all prayed for things that you know in hindsight, you're like, thank God you didn't give me that. Um, I think if you walk with Jesus long enough, we all have those moments, right? Um, But the problem is we don't live with perfect hindsight. We are time-bound creatures. We can't see the end from the beginning like Jesus can. And so Mark writes this story at the beginning of Passion Week. For those of us who don't have perfect hindsight, who tend to be forgetful to say to us, when Jesus shows up on a donkey instead of a war horse, like you were expecting, and you're like, are you kidding me? It's not because he doesn't love you. It's not because he's waiting for you to clean yourself up. And it's not because he's an idiot either. It is because he loves you enough to disappoint you in the short term, to give you what will bring you life in the long term. He loves you enough to disrupt your little expectations, to give you what you are ultimately longing for, which is true life, which is true flourishing, which is eternal life forevermore. And I think that's the big idea of this story. That is what if I think Mark is pressing in when he emphasizes this whole donkey thing, is that when Jesus shows up on a donkey instead of a war horse, and you're like, What are you doing? Are you kidding me? The story reminds us that Jesus isn't a genie. He is a king. And what that means is he will surprise us. He will disrupt us. But what this story teaches us is he will always do it to bring us life, to bring us flourishing, that he is a king that we can trust. Even when we don't know the end from the beginning, we know the end of this story. If you don't, read Mark 11 to 16. It's kind of an amazing story. Keep coming. We'll keep going through the story. But this is the point. And what this story asks of us as we launch into the Passion Week is it asks one simple question of us. Do we want a genie or do we want a king? Do you want a genie in your life or a king in your life? Um, Because here's what I'll say. If you want a genie that will do your wishes, um, again, I want to just love you well. This is one of my goals this year. I want to love you well by speaking truthfully to you. Um, If you want a genie in your life, you should probably go elsewhere. Because Jesus does not play that game. Um, If he loves you, he will show up in your life this year and disrupt some things. Not, not to keep you down, not to keep you from flourishing, but in fact because you're keeping yourself down and he wants you to truly flourish. But I just want to be honest with you. See, progress is made not when we come to church and pretend to be something we're not. Progress is made when we have real talk with God and with one another. 
And so this is where we need to get honest this morning. Do you, do you want Jesus to be a genie or a king? Because if you just want Jesus to do everything you're saying, there are plenty of religions and philosophies that might work for you, but Christianity will not be the one. Christianity is not do good works and God will be your genie. Like every other religion, Christianity teaches that God is a king who loves you. You don't have to do good works. He's going to do the good works for you. By trusting and following the king, he'll lead you into life. It's a completely different framework. And, and I think we really need to, even for those of us who are committed Christ followers, to consider this question. Because we can sign on the line and say, I trust Jesus to save me from our sins. But when it comes to saving us from our problems at work, or at home, or with our friend group, or with our family. I mean, we need to think about, am I functionally looking for a genie or a king here? Am I open to what God wants to do here? Or am I only looking in this narrow window It's what God can do and I will get very frustrated with him or very down on myself if it doesn't go that way? I think we need to seriously consider this. And if you hear nothing else that I say today, I, I hope it will be this. Jesus is a surprising king. He will show up in your life in unpredictable ways. But we do not worship him in spite of this. We worship him precisely because of this. We worship him because he knows what we need better than we do. And he loves us better than we love ourselves. And that he has shown us by laying down his life, the level of his commitment to us knows no bounds. He's not waiting for us to measure up. He is simply wanting to lead us into life this year. Um, C.S. Lewis, I think he captures this whole story so well uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, if you've never read the Chronicles of Narnia, there are sil- ser- uh, a series of children's books, which are like, why are you going to read a children's book to me? Because it's phenomenal. Um, there's a, 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 a lion in the story named Aslan that's kind of the Jesus figure. And I just want to read you from the Chronicles of Narnia how Lewis describes Aslan, because I think it's such a fitting picture of our great God and King in this story. Listen to this. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think that is such a fitting picture of Jesus. Safe? Of course he isn't safe. Who told you Jesus would be safe? Good grief, it was me. I'm sorry if I've ever said anything that led you to believe that Jesus would be a genie and be safe and manageable in your life. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Precisely because he's not safe, he's good. If he were safe, he couldn't be good. He couldn't deliver you from your cycle of sin and death, but because he isn't safe, Because he's willing to show up and disrupt your life, that's exactly why he can lead you into life. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What a beautiful summary of Jesus that is. And and I would invite you to respond to our surprising, to our loving, to our gracious king this morning. Um, A few ways you can do that is through prayer. Um, We're going to have a time um, where the band's going to come up in just a moment, and I want to encourage you to get honest with God this morning. 
Um, for some of you, this is maybe the day that you become a Christian. For some of you, this is the day for the first time you're going to say, Hosanna, save. Like, yeah, if, if you're someone that will save me in spite of me, I will take that offer this year. If that's you, um, all you have to do is turn to prayer this morning and say, Hosanna. The word's not magical. It's the heart posture that says, Jesus, save me. Um, I'd encourage you to fill out a connect card, take it to the info desk so we can follow up with you. Uh, we would love to support you in your walk with Jesus. For, um, for those of you who uh, are Christians already, um, this step is still for you where I would invite you to consider where am I frustrated with Jesus or maybe frustrated with myself? Where am I maybe looking for Jesus to be a genie instead of a king? And um, see, the sermon isn't a call to say, to come to church and fake and pretend like you're okay when Jesus surprises you. No, this sermon is an invitation to come to Jesus and say, I don't get what you're doing here. This surprises me. This disrupts me. The opportunity is to wrestle, not to run. And so we would invite you to do that this morning, to, to get honest with God and tell him about what's going on in your life. Maybe say for the first time, I don't get why you're doing this, but I want to. It is as we draw near an open and honest prayer with the Lord that God really meets us in our lives. So the first way you can respond is through prayer. The second way you can respond is through communion. Um, for those who have trusted in Jesus, you'll find a communion cup in front of you in the pew there. And while we are singing, this is one of the ways that we can remember that Jesus doesn't look for us to measure up in order to bless us, but that Jesus, when we did not love him, he laid down his life for us. That Jesus took the first step toward us. That Jesus invites us to relationship. And no matter what we do this year, the cross of Jesus Christ says, you can't out my love. You are not bigger than me. You are not stronger than me. No matter what you struggle with, he loves you in spite of you. And so communion is just a great way to remember this reality as we remember the broken body and shed blood of our king who would die to make us his. And so we'd invite you to uh, communion. Additionally, you can respond through offering. Um, there's offering boxes in the back that at the end of service, just like the crowd, threw their cloaks on the ground and said, you are worthy. If you want to respond with your finances and say, Jesus, you are worthy. I love you. You're my king. That is an opportunity available to you today. And finally, um, we are going to end this service like our text began, by singing. Just like the crowd screamed his praises. After we pray and we take communion and we respond in these ways, then we get to respond just like the crowd and sing his praises and say, I won't fully walk with you faithfully this year. I'm going to forget your love. I'm going to get frustrated with you, but you're going to keep coming after me. You are for me. And that's why this year can be different than all of the others because my life is not found in my circumstances, but my life is found in my king who will take the weirdest, craziest stuff that could happen to me and use it for my good, we're going to sing his praises. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'd invite you to respond to our great God and King. Jesus, you are the one that we long for. Each and every one of us. You, you are the one that we long for. And um, I thank you that you are a king, not a genie. I thank you that you love us enough to surprise us. I thank you that you love me enough to surprise me. Um, that this sermon isn't theory for me, that this is what you do for all of us. And so Jesus, I ask that as we seek to respond to you, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us to get honest with you. 
Uh, Would you protect us from the lies of the evil one that would try to keep us from you this morning, that would try to distract or distort the truth? Would you send your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth? Would you help us to not be fickle like this crowd, like we so often are, wavering and going back and forth on you, but would you lead us into a deeper faith this year that has deeper roots into you, that knows more of your cross and what we see this week, that because of what we know of your passion, we would be more trusting of your leadership in our life. So help us to respond to you in a way that would give you glory and us life and that would ring out into this community this year. We love you. We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.